CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Somebody in a position of some influence at the United States Internal Revenue Service saw their grandkid beg for a Roblox card in the Walgreens checkout line and thought, my God, the Bitcoins have come for the children. Welcome to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Show. On today's episode, we had planned to discuss some of the new and interesting things going on in Lightning Network technology, which threatened to offer real privacy solutions, not just for money, but for private borderless speech as well. But there's another topic that's been on my mind for a number of weeks now that we're going to focus on instead. You probably won't be surprised to hear it's the coronavirus, an apparently highly infectious disease that's causing a lot of concern in the world beyond our little industry. With new cases popping up all over the world, today our unscripted discussion will focus on the potential impacts on Bitcoin, and more importantly, how an infectious pandemic, if we get to that point, could fundamentally change the risk-reward calculations of adoption for systems like Bitcoin. This isn't a fun or a good topic, but it's probably one of the most important ones that we could have today, and so we will in just a moment. Later, we'll lighten things up with the first in a series of monthly correspondence segments from long-ago LTB contributor George Ettinger, who is back with a new piece called The Dumb Singularity. Cryptocurrencies and game currencies are overdue for a collision. I've listened to it already, and it's pretty darn funny. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com and Purse.io. Let's Talk Bitcoin, the show, is owned by the hosts, and we're fully editorially independent, basically with these topics just coming out of our heads and our discussions right before we start speaking. But you can still find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com, which incidentally is about to turn into a full-fledged website, but I need a couple more weeks on that. With all that said, I'd like to welcome you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. This is episode 429. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm a longtime journalist, entrepreneur, and these days I'm also an editor at Coindesk. Joining our discussion today are the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. And Mr. Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Jonathan Mohan is out today. Okay. So we're going to assume that you've been following the coronavirus, but just to summarize, this disease is somewhat special in that it appears to be highly contagious compared to prior regional outbreaks like SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, right? Yes, correct. Um, and notably, it has a long period of time where it can be transmitted person to person by people who have no symptoms and don't even know that they're sick. Last night, California and the U.S. as a whole reported the first late-stage case that they couldn't trace back to any existing traveler who had visited one of these the impacted regions. And given the severity of the case, it's assumed that this person was living their normal life and potentially infecting a lot of people over the course of two to four weeks before their recent hospitalization. There are three broad areas that we want to hit with today's discussion. The first is potential mining infrastructure impacts and just supply chain impacts in general. 
Secondly, is the safe haven narrative versus the uncorrelated asset narrative versus the risk asset narrative and how really we're kind of seeing signs of all of those right now. And then finally, fundamental changes that could potentially come from this in the way that people think about money as a whole and as, uh, you know, transacting and kind of how we do that in a person to person fashion and how that might sort of impact a lot of the friction that people see in systems like cryptocurrency where there really isn't a good reason to use it yet. We're going to talk briefly about some of the biology and about viruses in general, but for listeners who want to skip right to the blockchain implications part of this episode, please skip to 13 minutes, six seconds or so. So uh, who wants to kick things off here and where, where, where do you want to start? Oh, maybe we should uh, summarize some facts about the virus, uh, even though I try not to pay too much attention to the news because there's misinformation and FUD, right? And everything is politicized. Let's just be clear about that. We're not going to get into any politics as far as any of this stuff goes. The reality of it is, is that regardless of what kind of the political impact is, this does appear to be a thing that's happening just in the broader world. This is biology. Let's focus on biology. Right. So I'll talk a little bit about that because I have half a medical degree uh, and a PhD in biochemistry. Not that this makes me a virologist or anything, but coronaviruses are a family of viruses, like a family of like mammals or something like that in animals. They are usually respiratory illnesses. They usually cause like a common cold kind of symptoms. And they're named because if you look at the virus on an electron microscope, the virus has proteins sticking out of its edges. And so it looks like kind of it's wearing a crown. And so Corona is like, a you know, the Latin root is crown. So that's where the name comes from. It's like the appearance of the virus in an electron micrograph. Some other important viruses that belong to this same family are SARS and MERS, as you mentioned before. And these were both really concerning in the past. I think I still remember... Uh, the outbreak of SARS in the early 2000s and the response of people um, being really afraid of contracting it, people walking around wearing masks and watching the news about that. In the end, I I don't think SARS was uh, as deadly as all of the fear, you know, all of the fears surrounding it were predicting it would be, but it was still definitely a concern. And anytime there's a new virus that we've never seen before, it's definitely concerning because we don't know how bad this virus is going to be. Um, and this one in particular, the, the COVID-19 or the NCOV, they were calling it novel coronavirus 2019 when it was first identified. This one, you know, it, it's, it still remains to be studied. Like, where did it come from? Is it, is it from an animal that kind of jumped into humans? How does it spread? It obviously can spread person to person now, right? And how bad is it? Is it going to kill you? Uh, does it depend on your age, your immune status, your any other factors? And how transmissible is it? How easy is it to spread from person to person? And as you pointed out, Adam, there's new evidence coming out recently that seems to indicate that it could have kind of a long incubation period where people may develop symptoms in as little as a couple days or it may take like two weeks for them to start developing symptoms. So that could be really concerning because if the virus is transmissible before the symptoms start to show, someone might not even know that they're sick, but they could infect a bunch of other people. Then you get a global pandemic, right? Then if you have people walking around who can transmit the virus, who don't even know they're sick yet, then potentially a lot of people get infected and a lot of people need medical care at the same time. 
And then, you know, if it starts to affect emergency responders or healthcare workers or the people who are providing care, they're definitely going to be exposed to it if they're caring for people who have this virus. Then the infrastructure could crumble for providing healthcare and support for those people pretty quickly if a lot of people start getting infected. And crumble for providing support to other people. Like if you get into a car accident and you can't go to the hospital because it's full of infectious people, and even if you did, you wouldn't get treated because there's no one to treat you or the hospital is completely crowded, then you die from a car accident, which you might otherwise have survived because of that. And that applies to you know, you're going to have issues with childbirth and things like asthma attacks and yes. really preventable types of uh, issues that a normal healthcare system could handle. So it's not just the primary causes, but also secondary effects from the overwhelmed healthcare system. And then you've got all of the social panic, isolation, and economic impact from people thinking this is the apocalypse. Yeah, and that's important because if people are scared about something, they're at a low level of stress at all times, which does actually weaken the immune system and increase the chances that you will get sick from something and also exacerbate pre-existing health conditions. Stress makes every health problem worse. And if you're scared, you're stressed, and that's not going to be good for anybody. And it also, as you pointed out, Andres, has impacts on people's behavior, including their economic activity. Like, how likely are they to leave the house? How likely is someone to go out and go to a place where they might interact with a lot of people, like a grocery store or a marketplace of some kind, where there's going to be physical items like cash and goods changing hands from person to person that could be a fomite or a vehicle for germs to cling on to and get transmitted to another person. Stephanie, coronavirus also includes things that uh, we do consider the common cause. So if I'm not mistaken, we've all had Correct. probably a coronavirus at some point when we just had a cold. It just happened to be a type of coronavirus that isn't particularly symptomatic or deadly, and we just had a cold and got over it. So when we have a cold, it could very likely be a coronavirus or a rhinovirus. That's correct. Uh, as you mentioned, rhinoviruses are another family of viruses that cause common cold symptoms. Also, adenoviruses are another family that causes those kind of symptoms. And the only reason that that could be relevant is that maybe if you've had uh, common colds before caused by different types of coronaviruses than the, the one that's in the news recently, it could provide some immunity potentially against the the novel coronavirus COVID-19, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes viruses that are in the same family have a similar coating of proteins on their outside. And that's what our immune system responds to or part of what our immune system responds to when we contract a virus. We're producing antibodies against those proteins that are on the outside of the virus. And also we have this innate immune response if we have a healthy immune system. We can detect cells that are inf infected by a virus, any kind of virus, doesn't matter which kind. It says this cell has been hijacked and it needs to go and it kills it. <laughs> so our immune systems are really cool and it's possible that there could be, you know, immunity provided by being exposed to other coronaviruses. But we don't really know about that yet because I don't think COVID-19 is well studied enough yet. And the way to think about these families of viruses is like, for example, everyone's heard of herpes, right? It, there's a stigma around herpes being a sexually transmitted disease or something that causes cold sores on your mouth. And there's a big stigma around it. But herpes viruses are actually an entire family of viruses 
which includes things like chickenpox. So if you've ever had chickenpox, you've had a herpes virus. Also things like CMV, which is a virus that not a lot of people know about, but it could potentially be a health concern for certain people. Epstein-Barr virus as well is also a herpes virus, as I understand it. So these families of viruses, it's kind of useful for classification purposes, but I think people get confused when they hear about that because they can confuse different individual viruses with each other, which could be very different in the way they're transmitted or the symptoms they cause or both. Yes. Uh, for example, I have in the past had a common household cat as a pet. I would not have enjoyed having another member of the same family, a lion, in my living room. <laughs> yes, and it's a great one analogy. would represent a much greater risk for me. Same with wolves and dogs and things like that. So, yeah, just because it's got the same name or belongs to the same family doesn't mean that the risks are the same, the symptoms are the same, or anything like that. And you would think that people could maybe understand that concept, but Andreas, you were saying before we started recording that. There's actually been a decrease in the sales of Corona beer because of this linked to this recent epidemic, because some people think it may be connected somehow. Yes. And that's not true. Just to be clear about that, there's no connection except for the similar sounding name. <laughs> there's a, a crown on the brand of the Corona beer because it's named after crowns because it's, you know, it's a royal beer. But that's the only connection in the name. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of... It, it, that isn't even an issue of misinformation. That is simply a matter of a, a complete lack of understanding of the, the entire topic. It's, it's zero information at that point. Yeah, but it still impacts economic activity. And that is a real world effect, even if it comes from ignorance or misunderstanding. That's your zero knowledge protocol at work. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, again, without getting into kind of all the details about this particular disease, let's just assume for a second that the disruptions that we're seeing in China continue, whether or not they escalate or not. Um, one of the things that, you know, China is really, really central to sort of the kind of supply chains of the world. And where those supply chains specifically intersect with the world of cryptocurrency has a lot to do with mining hardware mining hardware and also mining hash power because there's a substantial proportion of the actual mining work that goes into protocols like Bitcoin that are coming out of that region. Um, we have the halving coming up this summer and there had been a lot of companies that were spinning up new production in an effort to you know, essentially service these miners who want to increase the amount of hash power that they're throwing. And it's not necessarily just tied to the halving, right? Miners are basically constantly trying to upgrade their efficiency and to run their hardware so that they can get the largest possible share of the reward pool that's really available. And I mean, we've described uh, you know, the process of proof, of proof of work mining in the past as sort of a competitive money burning process. And one of the ways that you competitively burn that money is by buying this new hardware. Well, almost all of the sort of production out of China, whether you're talking about our industry or you're talking about the industry I used to be in, which is bioplastic, you know, cutlery to, you know, sell to colleges that they then use in their food service, like all of that stuff happens there. And so what we've seen is a gradual and then fairly abrupt shrinking of the growth in hash rate power, which traditionally is a number that's mostly gone up. So from a security standpoint, from a functionality standpoint, I don't think that this actually impacts much of anything. It just sort of freezes that race at the current equilibrium and maybe presents an opportunity for uh, companies that are manufacturing hardware outside of these heavily affected areas already. 
But am I missing anything on that? Well, from my perspective, the manufacturing aspect has really changed over the last uh, three or four years. Around 2016 is when the fabrication of ASICs in Bitcoin mining reached the forefront of Moore's law and reached equilibrium with Moore's law, which then dramatically slowed down the increase in density to just you know twice every 18 months. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was factors of 10, 100, or even 1,000 between subsequent generations of ASICs. What that has done is actually decrease the logistical nightmare of having to upgrade all of the hardware inside your warehouse every three months before you are functionally unprofitable in the mining race vis-a-vis -vis other miners who did upgrade. Now that cycle has slowed down to a year, maybe in some cases even two years, where you know basically ASICs from 2018 are still usable today and not just a waste of electricity. At least that's my understanding. Maybe not exactly 2018, maybe 2019. So that's one good thing. The other thing to realize is the sheer rate of growth in this space. Like if we lost 50% of all of the hash rates today, we would be back where we were in June of 2018. The network worked fine then. I don't see why it wouldn't work fine now. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's increased so much that losing a significant percentage just the percentage loss isn't a problem. You would have a two-week slowdown where blocks would come out every 20 minutes if you've lost 50% of the hash rate, if that happened suddenly and all at once. If it happened over a period of time, it wouldn't even be that big of an impact. And then after two weeks, the difficulty retargeting algorithm kicks in and you, you get a retargeting. Now, of course, if you lose 50% of the hash rate and you have 20 minute blocks, it's actually gonna take closer to three and a half weeks or four weeks at the worst case scenario to get that difficulty retargeting because it's based on the number of blocks. So there, there is that. But so you would be upside down on your difficulty at that point? Yes, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and in order to mine the 2016 blocks to get to the retargeting, you'd have to do that at a rate of one every 20 minutes, which would mean it would take twice as long to do the, what normally takes two weeks for the retargeting. Uh, so again, you would have a slow network, but still a functioning network. And that really is a worst case scenario, because what we're far more likely to see, just based again on the kind of supply manufacturing and supply chain slowdown, isn't really any drop off of existing hash power. Those, those machines are already installed. They're already effectively within the infrastructure. And the only reason to do that would be if like systemic power loss or something like that, right? But the manufacturing thing doesn't impact it at all. The manufacturing part impacts the ability of the network to continue to grow that hash rate. Right. And as we said, that's just more security on top of more security on top of more security. It's a nice to have, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, keep in mind, a lot of things change during this period. Let's, let's say, again, go back to the scenario. You've lost 50% of the hash rate overnight because a whole bunch of warehouses that weren't staffed had failures. Those failures weren't fixed in time because there weren't enough people around to fix them. And that causes a, a cascade failure where a whole bunch of hashing power goes out. 50% is gone. Now, think about what happens then. Well, first of all, the remaining hash rate that's on the network is now getting twice as many blocks as before. The blocks are coming out less often, but they just double their share of the overall market that they get, right? Which means they become very, very profitable. So at that point, the incentives to participate in that hash rate market that is now 50% smaller have doubled, right? So everyone's really incented to get it back online. 
And that's one of the self-balancing aspects of this. Unprofitable miners turn off, but when they do, that makes the existing profitable miners more profitable. That kind of self-balancing system, it seems like even in a scenario where you're talking about a very, very large reduction, ultimately, it still does self-balance. It might take a couple of weeks to get there, but it does self-balance. And the incentives for the people who are remaining, as you said, really do go up. And for new people to participate who perhaps had less efficient hardware that was obsoleted, now it might actually come back into vogue. Exactly. Now, the other thing is to look at these operations. Uh, if you think about it in terms of an industrial scale facility, a Bitcoin mine is probably far less dependent on human interaction than many other types of activities of similar scale, monetary scale, let's say for now, but also electricity scale. If you think about you know, what kind of factory would use that much power and, and how many workers that would need compared to these machines that are mostly running on their own. Of course, you need workers to rack and stack, decommission, fix faults, fix wiring problems, balance electrical loads, monitor everything, etc., etc. But one, some of those workers are not even local. They can be remote. Some of those workers who have to be local are not coming into interactions with too many other workers, and they're not coming into interactions with supplies that are tangible, that might have infectious agents on them, etc., etc., which means that they can probably keep going to work. And you know, usually you have these very large warehouses that only have a handful of people running around inside doing things to the computers. That's one thing. The other thing is to think about the electricity. If anything, because of that difference in how this activity works, the fact that this activity is usually far from urban centers, it's usually in isolated areas where there's excess electricity, What's more likely to happen is that the other factories that require workers that are closer to urban settings stop using electricity because they've shut down, or they reduce their use of electricity because they're running at less capacity. And that means that rather than less electricity being available, there might be more electricity being available. There might be more capacity available because other activities have slowed down. And in many cases, these forms of electricity don't stop being produced. If you have nuclear, if you have hydro, if you have wind, if you have solar, uh, geothermal, etc., the energy doesn't stop just because you have less demand. Interestingly enough, that means it becomes more efficient to do mining than other economic activities, and it's an activity that has less of a risk of infection and doesn't have a long logistical pipeline. So I think all of those things probably make mining a tiny bit more resilient. If we should be worried about anything right now, we should be worried about the fact that ironically, even or tragically, depending on how you look at it, Wuhan is actually the center of pharmaceutical activity and pharmaceutical industrial activity in China, meaning that the vast, vast majority of protective hazmat gear, masks, uh, N95 masks, goggles, gloves, etc., were made in da -da -da, Wuhan. And those supply chains have been massively disrupted to the point where we may end up having plenty of mining, but running out of surgical masks and N95 masks because they're made there. So there, there's other supply chains that are going to be disrupted far more than mining, in my opinion. Of course, we never know. The fully sort of digital nature of this thing that we're doing, again, like with all of the sort of interconnections happening 
between different sort of localities that never actually need to interact with each other in person, never need to ship a, a case of something from one location to another outside of kind of the hardware underlying does seem like it offers some pretty substantial advantages in a situation like this, certainly. Yes, we are more susceptible to computer viruses yes. than biological viruses. That is the truth. Because this is a virtual currency running over the internet, it is actually much more resilient to these kinds of issues. We'd like to thank eToro for sponsoring this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Why use eToro? eToro is a large, well-established US-regulated trading platform that has over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. eToro offers powerful trading tools made simple. You can create a diverse crypto portfolio, get access to smart charts and analysis on every asset, and eToro also has social features and the opportunity to practice and learn with a virtual trading mode. eToro offers low spreads, no commissions, and no hidden fees. Why wait? Getting started takes just minutes at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Crypto assets are volatile and trading them carries risk. Please trade responsibly. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another Sponsored Minute. Hey Matt. Hey Adam. At Purse, our mission is making crypto useful. We believe that the value of Bitcoin goes up for everybody when we expand its use case as digital cash. At Purse, we enable Bitcoin users to buy anything on Amazon with their Bitcoin for big discounts. We also spend half our resources as a company developing open source tools to get Bitcoin into more hands and make Bitcoin easier to send and receive for everybody. These tools include the Bitcoin full node and SPV node, the Bitcoin wallet, and the multi-sig server. All these applications are under active development and they get better every day. Check out our documentation and library of introductory developer guides at Bitcoin.io. We can learn everything from cross-chain atomic swaps to building web-based Bitcoin tools with the Bitcoin library. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit Bitcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. One thing that I hear a lot is that cash is dirty. And I wonder if that also applies to credit cards, right? We've all heard this, like there's thousands of bacterial colonies on each piece of cash. There's parasites, there's blood, there's hair, there's poop, there's everything. And this is something that we handle on a daily basis, most of us. How significant is that, right? Like if people were using cryptocurrencies more, you could imagine a touchless payment system. And there already are some touchless payment systems like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay. I guess you, you can wave your phone, you can tap something and send a payment. It's kind of working on that. But do you guys think that's significant in today's world? Like the, the actual idea of people handling cash and paying for things and exchanging it? I think it absolutely is. And we're seeing this happen right now in Hubei province. So in that entire area, uh, we're seeing these effects manifest in real time. First of all, people are reluctant to use cash. Secondly, the government has withdrawn literally tons of physical cash, metric tons of cash, either to destroy, to incinerate and remove from circulation, or to wash. 
Uh, wow, literal China's money, doing laundering money laundering and burn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, they're, they're disinfecting cash in very large quantities, at least according to some of the things I've read. The other thing to realize is that while you know in the West we have Samsung Pay and Apple Pay, etc., these are tiny, these are dwarfs compared to the real digital cash payment systems that have been already deployed and in use in China for years. The vast majority of the Chinese economy runs on digital cash, not physical cash, other than in rural areas. The vast majority of that happens over payment mechanisms like Alipay. Bitcoin isn't the biggest QR code-based payment system in the world by a long stretch. Alipay, which uses QR codes to do payments, is several orders of magnitude bigger and corresponds to hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity every year. And is incredibly common. You go not only in China, but in any China adjacent territory, including most of Southeast Asia, Australia, Japan, and other countries, even in Europe. And you will see coffee shops that have Alipay QR codes with stickers on their cash registers. It's a very common. Any place that has a lot of tourists from China probably accepts Alipay, and almost anywhere in the world. So if you if you go to one of those places, you'll see it. So people are already on digital currencies, and I think this is going to push China very rapidly into crossing the last mile, really, idea, where you know 90% of the activity is already on digital currencies, the last 10%. How quickly can that happen? Probably it's going to take decades. Well, no, maybe it's only going to take months now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because people are motivated. Everyone has it, or almost everyone has it. It's very broadly accessible. It's very broadly usable. Both ends of the market are very well developed. So yeah, that, that's going to happen, and it's not going to be crypto. Well, so on the subject of that, of on the subject of it not being crypto, so China has been for some time now working on their central bank digital currency, the digital yuan, if you want to call it that. And there's been kind of speculation that perhaps the impact of this could be a slowing down of that project simply because it's more difficult to meet in person. It's more difficult to collaborate and work on these things. And actually, we've, we've had comments out of the government that have basically indicated the opposite, that this may actually cause them to, to accelerate that process and, and accelerate that rollout as a way of providing a sort of centrally controlled uh, alternative to sort of all of the disparate payment systems that are out there, in fact, and to use this as a way to launch pad that. We don't know if that's what will happen, but it is kind of interesting to think about how the value proposition of these fully digital, fully touchless uh, payment methods kind of changes in a fundamental way when there are concerns in a real sense about how people interact and whether or not there's possibilities of, as you said, Stephanie, like, is is a credit card the same thing as like cash? Like if you touch a, you know, a chip reader or whatever, is that an equivalent type of, of thing? And is there an infection vector there? And most importantly, not necessarily what's true, but what will people think? What will people be concerned about in their day-to-day -day interactions if this does become more of a thing? Yeah. And will financial surveillance through the credit card payment system be used to find people to quarantine, right? Like, oh, you touched this terminal. We've traced an outbreak back there. So already happening in China, they're using uh, credit card and Alipay payments, and they're using the various other surveillance mechanisms to backtrace the uh, actions and movements of people who they later find to be infected and quarantine everyone they came into contact with. It's already happening. 
I think this is a real issue here, which is that for a long time, people have misunderstood what Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are about. They're not about moving from analog money to digital money, because we already have digital money that isn't crypto. The future is going to be digital, regardless of whether it's crypto or not. The difference between crypto and digital money that's issued by banks or corporations like the digital yuan or Alipay is who controls how much surveillance, how much privacy is involved in these transactions. And so crypto is the surveillance-free, people-controlled, uh, decentralized digital money. And it's not opposed to analog money, it's opposed to every other thing. In fact, crypto's greatest friend is analog money, because analog money is also people-controlled, peer-to-peer, decentralized and surveillance-free, and one of the greatest on-ramps. The fact that this will accelerate the move to a cashless society is actually bad for crypto, because it makes it harder to have non-surveilled on-ramps and off-ramps into and out of crypto. It forces us more into a circular economy. On the one hand, I think that the math just kind of that we all mentally do changes pretty dramatically when we get concerned about something that's wildly infectious. So I think that from a digital currency standpoint, whether you're talking about cryptocurrency or not, I think you're absolutely right. I think on the other hand, what you're saying is that as much as we would perhaps like to be, we're not really ready to step up and take that mantle under most circumstances. And while it does change sort of the math around how we think about it, cryptocurrency as an alternative that could be rolled out at scale, I just don't know if we're there yet. Yes, using cryptocurrency to resist the biological threat is not something that's going to really be a big issue. However, using crypto to resist the state authority and corporate surveillance effect that is the result of the biological threat will absolutely become front and center. The fact that right now people are being rounded up because of surveillance on their cash or that people are being punished for speaking about uh, scaring people, uh, spreading misinformation, or in most cases, spreading information about this biological threat. And they're being punished by asset seizure, by incarceration and things like that, and they're being surveilled. That leads more people to need an alternative that they can use to resist that kind of totalitarian state control. Once again, digital cryptocurrencies are an anti-totalitarian mechanism. They will not be necessary to resist the biological threat, but they will be necessary to resist the totalitarian response to the biological threat, which we're seeing play out in China right now. So before we started this discussion, we were talking a little bit about how to address this topic, because we've all kind of seen some people out there look at this as an advantage for cryptocurrency. And the reality of it is, is that it really doesn't seem to be. It's a little bit easier to talk about it today. We're recording this on Thursday before this will release on Sunday. And the price of Bitcoin right now, looking at the chart, is at $8,921. And that's down more than $1,000 uh, from what the price was just a few days ago as we kind of had breached uh, 10000 I think that there's been a lot of assumption that cryptocurrency is what you call a safe haven asset. And some of that is self-fulfilling prophecy, and some of that is just not knowing what actually it is. And some of that is that it's probably a bunch of different things because different people view it differently, and that narrative sort of matters a lot. So, you know, on the one hand, there's kind of the safe haven narrative, which is that, you know, when things go bad, just like gold, people will put money into something that they know is, is disconnected and basically safe. On the other hand, there's sort of the uncorrelated argument, 
which is basically not necessarily that it, you know, goes up or down as a result of things, but it's just disconnected from things, right? And then on the other side of it, you have kind of people who view it as a risk asset where it's like, well, I'm invested in this because I want to make more money and I think that the price is going to go up. But if the price goes down, then that's a risk asset moving the wrong direction. And just like a stock, you know, assuming that you're not in it for kind of the long haul, then there can actually be sort of like a cascade effect where selling causes more selling causes more selling. So, I mean, based on what we've seen so far, is there any sort of clarity in terms of what the narrative is or are we just confused? I think the only clarity really comes from whatever the market determines in the price, right? And even that's not clarity, right? It, it gives you- a, And that's exposed facto, yeah. right? It gives you a number, but it doesn't give you a reason. <laughs> and that's because the reason is always complicated and multifactorial, so. Very nicely put. It gives you a number, but not a reason. And there is no one reason, I think. That's, that's the key thing to realize. First of all, all three of these mentalities coexist at all times in this market. They always have. They always have coexisted because different people in different geographies and different circumstances and with different governments behave differently and see crypto uh, or see the value in crypto for a different reason. And every time you have a conversation in a different country about why do you use crypto and what does it mean to you, you get a different answer, which depends on the local context. The way an American investor with disposable income operates with regard to popular cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, but also many of the others, is very different to the way someone might behave in Argentina or Venezuela. Very different is how someone might behave in China or Hong Kong. And even within those geographies, of course, you're going to have all mixtures of the motivations. Some people who look at it as a speculative asset or a risk asset will, you know, easy in, easy out. Spooked during the panic sale, full mode to the gills when there's a bull market and everybody's jumping in way too late and getting too giddy. You get that kind of whipsaw effect where the price starts reflecting the price. So it moves today because it moved yesterday and people interpreted that and decided to jump in to catch the momentum. I think that's a lot of what's happening now, and I think for the last couple of years we've seen a lot of that. A lot of the price discovery that's happening in the markets around crypto is not based on fundamental uses or utility, but a lot of it is based on simply following price movements in a speculative fashion. And that's okay, it certainly gives liquidity, but it also creates a lot of volatility. On the other hand, think about it this way, China is at least the one country that is going to be deeply affected economically at this point. It is very likely that we will see many other countries also deeply affected in a cascade event of economic contagion that occurs because of supply chain interruption and then because of primary trade and currency wars. But without any of that, right now, China's manufacturing outputs, China's growth, China's economic activity is clearly being affected and affected deeply. And you can see that not only from the official numbers like the manufacturing index, consumer confidence and things like that, the numbers that are provided by the statistical arm of the government, which may be massaged, uh, to put it nicely. But we can also see it, I don't know if you've read some of these reports, from secondary effects like levels of pollution and levels of traffic heat outputs and things like that that can be observed from satellites, that can be observed from independent sources where you can see that if, if human movement has stopped and 
electricity consumption and outputs of CO2 gases and things like that have dropped dramatically. That tells you that things are not working, right? Factories are being shut down, productivity is being shut down. Energy inputs and outputs don't lie about what's happening, especially in a manufacturing-centric economy like China. All right, so what happens next? Well, stimulus. Three days ago, Hong Kong announced it was going to be giving 10,000 Hong Kong dollars to every adult in the territory. Um, wow. I didn't actually hear helicopter that Helicopter money. Yep. Me either. Is that so that they stop protesting, or because they're terrified of coronavirus, or because tourism has collapsed for both of those reasons? Yes, yes, and yes, but it is helicopter money. It's straight up the most extreme form of stimulus you can have, but probably the most equitably shared form of stimulus, because this is trickle-up instead of trickle-down. How far behind is China on this? Quantitative easing is already happening and has been happening for the past decade in China and many other countries and many of the other big economies. It's going to go into overdrive. There's no question about that. The Chinese central bank has already increased its intervention in the economy and is already printing money like crazy. So, you know, at this point, the manufacturing activity has dropped by 40%, and now the primary manufacturing activity in China is printing yuan. Well, what happens then? A lot of Chinese people who have yuan will want to get the hell out of that currency because the effect of that much stimulus is to devalue the currency, inflation. And so then they need a safe haven. So as much as we say, you know, Bitcoin isn't a safe haven right now and it's dropping in price because right now people are mostly taking back their disposable income and moving it out of risky assets. Yes, that's the people who have been investing in Bitcoin right now, and that's happening in places that are not directly affected. But over the next six months, over the next year, as the inflationary effects of a global orgy of stimulus and the potential of recession commingle, I think you're going to start seeing some of the safe haven activity ramping up really rapidly. It could go either way. And I don't know which effect is going to overwhelm the other effect, right? This is now about which effect is more pronounced and how does the market, or even, as you said, Adam, which effect does the market believe is more pronounced? But the bottom line is the, it's, it's way too early to tell which of the two it is or which effect is going to be greater. So I think it's important to um, add a little note whenever we have a conversation like this. There are some people who see a, a situation like this playing out, a tragedy, right? A epidemic, something that could harm a lot of people and have disastrous effects potentially. And they say, this will drive the Bitcoin price up or this will create more exposure for cryptocurrency. And we have to remember that this is a tragedy. This is not something to be looked at with glee. You know, we're talking about this from the perspective of what could happen, and we're trying to stay grounded. But it's always important to remember that there are actual people involved in this whose lives are being affected. And it could affect our lives too, um, you know, coming up here in the future. So, of course, uh, we, we always have to remember the human element. I think it's worth talking about that explicitly. We've kind of talked about a lot of aspects of this, but we haven't actually talked at all about the fatality rate, which according to all the numbers that we've seen so far from around the world, looks to be about 1%. So your chances, if you do get this, again, of having it turn into something serious, really seem like they're one out of 100, which are not 
great odds, you know, compared to like not having a disease that could do that, but compared to other diseases that have much higher fatality rates, this is much more, the risk here is much more built around sort of systemic disruption and people changing their behavior in terms of who they want to interact with or how they want to interact in general, than it is that you will get this and it will be, you know, a serious thing just like by nature of having gotten it. Yeah, but also we have to remember that the most vulnerable are the very young, the very old, immunocompromised. I mean, that's who's going to need the most support. And having a stigma around a virus like this also doesn't help because, you know, people also need social support when they're vulnerable. Honestly, and the homeless, too. That's, I think, the biggest Mm. vector, especially in places like California. Um, That's, again, like because they're the least likely to actually get some sort of help for it. And they're in a very, very, uh, anyways, like I said, okay, great. Well, I appreciate you guys going here with me today. This was, I think, a good discussion of a a difficult topic, frankly. Um, I I feel pretty happy with how we did it. We'd like to hear what you think, though. Do you think we did a good job with this topic? Uh, Send me an email, adam at ltbshow.com. So now I'm pleased to share with you our first correspondence segment of the year 2020, entitled The Dumb Singularity. Cryptocurrencies and game currencies are overdue for a collision as reported by LTB contributor George Ettinger. One of the biggest barriers to entry for any disruptive technology is the incompetence of the average consumer. On the other hand, directly preying on the illiteracy of consumers can be a boon for some truly terrible inventions. It is in the clash of these two ideologies that we have reached the dumb currency singularity. Digital currency has been on course for the dumb singularity for over a decade, and we finally passed the event horizon late last year. At the end of 2019, the IRS quietly published a set of virtual currency guidelines, guidelines that broadly lumped together mainstream cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, with honest-to-God Fortnite V-Bucks and Roblox money. Uh, I have just been informed that the legal term for Roblox currency is Robux. That seems fair. My point, however roundabout it may be, is that somebody in a position of some influence at the United States Internal Revenue Service saw their grandkid beg for a Roblox card in the Walgreens checkout line and thought, my god, the bitcoins have come for the children. And then when he put his horror to print, enough of a phalanx of fellow IRS employees looked it over and thought, yes, that sounds right, that it was greenlit for public consumption. That advisement, to which the IRS claimed players of Fortnite and Roblox must report any purchases of bucks, whether they V or Ro, stood monolithically for nearly three months before it was escorted off the stage just as quietly as it had arrived. In a fit of beautiful sanding, this change caught more attention than the addition had garnered to begin with, and the IRS had to give a formal explanation. The IRS recognizes that the language on our page potentially caused concern for some taxpayers, they said. We have changed the language in order to lessen any confusion. Transacting in virtual currencies as part of a game that do not leave the game environment, virtual currencies that are not convertible, would not require a taxpayer to indicate this on their tax return. This is, surprisingly, rather huge. Huge in that they got this follow-up explanation relatively right, and huge in that they persist in getting the so-called virtual currencies wrong. You see, the IRS has been caught flat-footed over and over with every passing year that cryptocurrency has spread. They were slow enough recognizing the growing importance of Bitcoin that it wasn't until 2013 that they had designated a team to begin planning for how to handle the currency, and they still haven't figured out how to handle it today. And yet, dating back to even earlier than this, the IRS has also been blindsided at every turn by non-crypto gaming digital currencies. Their official language conflating the two isn't just a red flag, It's a canary in a coal mine. 
game currencies, for simplicity hereafter referred to as um, ga- game currencies, run a wide gamut, but the majority is exactly what the IRS failed to recognize in Fortnite and Roblox, a non-convertible, non-transferable currency that cannot reasonably leave the confines of its game. Your Fortnite V-Bucks and Apex Legends coins and... <sighs> Robux are all just an interstitial medium between your real money and your gameplay. You do not trade these with other players, nor do you have the options to take these chips up to the casino counter and cash them back out. Once your USD enters a game, it cannot leave it in any reasonable form. After the original point of sale, a game currency is no different than Sonic's rings. So, for as correct as the IRS eventually got it, they've still been handling game currencies wrong, and it has informed the ways they still get crypto wrong. Many game currencies are transferable and are dangerously viable mediums for exchange and laundering, and they've been around longer than Bitcoin. It's absolutely no secret that World of Warcraft gold is player transferable. It's the entire reason gold farming remains a legitimate source of income for so many people. Though less ubiquitous than Warcraft, the seminal supply chain actuary simulator EVE Online notoriously monetized its monthly subscription cards into a consumable in-game item. For those unfamiliar, this means that when you buy a month of game time, it isn't simply added to your account. It becomes an item in your game inventory that can either be used to extend your subscription or traded with other players as a sort of dollar-pegged commodity. Now, the truly fantastical economic tales of money laundering, actual virtual space piracy, and actual million actual dollar banking deals in EVE Online can and has filled several books, so I will not go into details here. The point is simply that player-exchangeable cash-value items have been a massive gray market for years, and have continued to slip under the IRS's nose. They didn't bat an eye at the horrifying headlines of Diablo 3's aborted real-cash auction house fiasco, and yet now in 2020, they're fumbling to grasp onto its legacy. That fumbling is part and parcel with their fumbling of Bitcoin, and the timeline tells a story. A recent Government Accountability Office review of IRS virtual currency policies painted a somewhat scathing picture of a bureaucracy that was too slow to notice and even slower to adapt. The IRS initiative in 2013 was a knee-jerk response to the first truly landmark year of Bitcoin cash trading, where dollar parity was suddenly blown aside by $100 parity. The impetus is obvious. Disruptive changes to currency don't matter to the IRS until they see it on the Wacky Stories segment of their local station news. The financial establishments that stood to gain from digital currencies were quick on the uptake, but the groups tasked with oversight were responding to changing conditions and new developments with the grace of a grandparent still gift-wrapping Cabbage Patch dolls for their kids' 35th birthdays. The GAO pointed out that, across three years, the IRS was trying to garner clues from the 900 people that had self-reported their Bitcoin capital gains. That's right. From 2013 to 2015, nearly a thousand God-fearing Americans had the saintly humility to self-report their Bitcoin earnings to the Feds, and it took three years of analysis for those feds to deduce that there might be more out there going unreported. Um, kudos, by the way, to those 900 honorable people who attempted to watch out for the Watchmen while the Watchmen weren't even watching. In these years since, the spectrum of cryptocurrencies has exploded, and the applications of game currencies has become strangely homogenized. Convertible game currencies like Warcraft Gold persist, but they are the exception now rather than the rule. Publishers have found that stifling the cross-player economy gives them better control over the experience and far less accountability for what is done with that money. Fortnite actually exemplifies this modern standard. Real currency is an aggressively optimized one-way flow, from player to publisher, with no convertible gains to be taxed. 
the IRS has long since missed the boat on dealing with game currencies. So why, then, did they so recently and so awkwardly collide with cryptocurrencies in the revenue service's jumbled mind? This, my friend, is the beginning of the dumb singularity. Desperation and technological illiteracy have finally boiled over, and the Bureau is trying to play catch-up on all the years that have passed it by. They may have smoothed over their initial blunder, but this is indicative of their intent to move forward with a more active hand, and their broad use of the phrase virtual currency means that more blunders probably lie ahead. The GAO excoriated them for their slowness, vagueness, and all-around wishy-washiness in these regards, but to some extent it was not the IRS's fault. The organization has struggled under budget cuts and a dangerous lack of new blood, and yes, you may read that as younger and more savvy blood. It was that same old blood that struggled to make any headway with their virtual currency issue team in 2013, and still wasn't seriously analyzing self-reported data from major crypto exchanges even into 2016. Some gentle flame finally reached their backside sometime after that, because by 2018 they were beginning to proactively reach out to users with obvious crypto gains and attempting to secure accurate reporting. Now, with the end of tax year 2019 upon us, they are finally facing the ontological conundrum at the center of the dumb singularity. What is the enforceable definition of virtual currency? What will distinguish between play money and dangerous money? While they dragged their feet comprehending the question, the answers have only gotten more muddled, as technology blazed its own trail forward with no policy guidance. This year, game currencies are completely surpassing retail purchases as the primary source of publisher revenue, and most of them aren't convertible or taxable. Most, but not all. The IRS's complacency left it with a massive ecosystem to sift through and a lack of reliable, literate talent to do it. If their random grab at the most obvious game currencies they could think of was any indication, there will be more broad and clumsy strokes before there are any real answers. The IRS has the unenviable task of writing a perfect definition in a language it can't seem to speak, all because they never got around to asking the question that I accidentally stumbled on 20 years ago. When my 13-year-old self spent 10 bucks on eBay for a wealth of obviously hacked Fantasy Star Online loot, I wondered, what laws will actually apply to the man who game genies his paychecks? And that's a wrap for episode 429 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. We appreciate you listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday at coindesk.com, letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course on the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. This episode was sponsored by eToro.com and purse.io with music by Jared Rubens. Today's show featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, George Ettinger, and Adam B. Levine with editing by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And we'll see you next time.